0: Amazing. All right, well, my name is Reeve Hamilton. I'm a reporter with the Texas Tribune. On behalf of the Tribune and myself, I'd like to thank you for coming to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival, and specifically to this panel on making higher ed affordable. Uh, we would ask that you, uh, you know, turn off your cell phones. And if you still want to tweet, then you can secretly put it on silent and keep it on and just use the hashtag TribuneFest, and uh, the hashtag for this track, uh, so this panel specifically is uh, TTF Higher Ed. Uh, I know that's two long hashtags, so good luck fitting in the rest of your thoughts, because our panelists are gonna have some very complex things to say. You want to tweet all of them. Um, let's see, what else do you need to know? We're gonna do about 60 minutes uh, total, so for the first 40 minutes we'll be talking, and then we'll do Q&A. Uh, just come up to line up by either of the microphones on either aisle. And we'll try to fit in as many questions as possible. We can do that better if you keep your questions short and you make sure that they are questions and not comments or observations, which you're welcome to share on Twitter using the hashtag TribuneFest or TTF higher end. Uh Well, let's get going, shall we? Uh, start with some introductions for our panelists today. At the very end, we have Stephanie Bond Huey. She's the Vice Chancellor uh, for the Office of Strategic Initiatives for the University of Texas System. That means she's responsible for monitoring higher education issues and making recommendations on trends and best practices. Previously, she served as Director and then Assistant Vice Chancellor for the Office of Strategic Initiatives. Please welcome Stephanie Bond Huey to the stage. Next to her, we have Sue McMillan, who is the president and CEO of the Texas Guaranteed Student Loan Corporation. She's held that position since 2004 and has worked in nonprofit management related to higher education for over 20 years. She also serves on several national post-secondary education councils and is a member of the board of directors for the National College Access Network. Welcome. Next to her, we have Representative Joaquin Castro, who is currently in his first term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He serves on the House Armed, Foreign, the House Armed Services and Foreign <laughs> Affairs Committees. And before his election to Congress in 2012, he served for a decade in the Texas legislature. So welcome back <laughs> to Austin. Next to him, we have Dan Jones, the president of Texas A&M University Commerce. Uh, he has served in that position since 2008, and previously he served as provost and vice president for academic affairs at Texas A&M International University in Laredo and as Dean of University College at the University of Houston downtown. Please welcome President Jones. And finally, Robert Duncan, the Chancellor of the Texas Tech University System. He's been in that position just since June. So congratulations on the new gig. Uh, Immediately preceding that, he served five terms in the Texas Senate where he was chairman of the State Affairs Committee. And prior to that, he served in the Texas House. So thank you for joining us, Chancellor. So we're going to talk about making higher education affordable, uh, which I'm sure is hits sort of close to home for many people here. Uh, and Representative Castro, uh, you have watched people try to tackle this issue both at the state level and the federal, issue, federal level now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the differences between the two and where we're, we're most likely to see some action that could actually lead to a solution?
1: Well, uh, first of all, thank you, Reeve, for hosting this. And it's wonderful to be part of a TripFest this year, uh, especially to talk about such an important subject in Texas uh, about people being able to afford to go to college. And then I think the unspoken part of that, be able to afford to graduate, to put in the time and graduate. Uh, I spent 10 years in the Texas legislature, uh, two of those as vice chair, two terms as vice chair of the Higher Education Committee. Dan Branch, a Republican from North Texas, up near Dallas with my chair during that time, and we spent a lot of time focusing on how we make sure that college is affordable for folks. Uh, we know, for example, that since 2003, uh, the cost of going to a public university in Texas has more than doubled, uh, which has made it difficult, uh, as you can imagine, as you know, for students to be able to afford to go to college and then to stay in college and graduate. So, at the state level, of course, you know, a few years back, Governor Perry came up with the idea of the $10,000 degree plan. Uh, and, and, you know, some schools have stepped up to try to meet that. Uh, but you know, in, in today's economy, that can be very tough, uh, trying to fit everything into a specific number like that. Uh, in, on the federal level, of course, what we deal with is Pell grants, for example, work study, uh, and student loans. And so a, a lot of the area that I focused on is, um, on, for example, expanding Texas's, using Texas's Beyond Time loan program as a model to expand nationally. (laughs) Uh, Making sure that we take down uh, bureaucratic regulations so that people can be, so that schools can advertise uh, the most affordable loan to students. Because believe it or not, there are regulations in place that make it hard to do that. Uh, And so, uh, but I guess, uh, to cut to the chase, making college affordable really is an endeavor that requires the cooperation of both the federal and the state governments. And, you know, between the federal government and Texas, uh, that's been lacking over the last few years. And so we need to improve that relationship. But both of those governments need to tackle this issue.
0: Well, and you mentioned the $10,000 degree, which is something that uh, is offered at A&M Commerce. They came up with a plan for that. But and I want to get to that in a second. But actually, first, I was wondering, uh, Ms. McMillan, if you could maybe give us sort of the, a sense of the Texas sort of lay of the land. You know, this is something that you guys have tracked for a long time. And we we have heard, I think people know nationally, student loan debt is, you know, surpassing credit card debt, a trillion dollars. But what what is the sort of actual situation here in this state?
2: In 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 this state, about $1.2 trillion in, in uh, student loans at the national level, about $70 billion worth of that comes from Texas students. And if we could just take a step back a little bit to kind of give you a a little bit of context. Um, Tuition just generally in the last 36 years has increased over 1,200%. And if you compare that to the CPI, which has increased by 279%, you can see that we have a very big problem. And you mentioned that um, in Texas over the last 10 or 11 years, tuition has increased 50 uh, percent, I think you said. Um, a recent Gallup poll has said that in the last 10 years, tuition has increased 80 percent on average nationwide. So you can you can see you know the expense that students are having to deal with. Some of the sessions this morning um, touched on some of these points as well as it related to closing the gaps. Uh, Dr. Garcia made a very good point, um, a couple of very good points uh, in her session, which was that. Part of the expense relates to tuition, but the other part of it really relates to food and housing. And I think that's, when you look at cost of education and the total Mm -hmm. cost of going to school, Texas is still cheaper than it is nationwide, but about 40% of your cost is relating to uh, food and housing. And so here, we're still a good deal. You know, uh, your average graduate graduates with about $25,000. Uh, in debt as compared to the national, which is closer uh, to 30%. 30%. But Texas is heavily reliant on the loan program. Um, The state contributes about 6% um, toward financial aid uh, institutions, about 10%, and the rest of that comes from uh, loans, primarily federal loans. Uh,
0: $25,000, Chancellor Duncan, how outrageous of that is that for
3: an investment in something sort of as important as your higher education? Well, if you compared it to a lot of different things like the purchase of a car, purchase of a house, obviously it's a uh, it's a relatively small investment uh, that you would make uh, that would basically provide you with the opportunities for a career that would generate a lot more income and provide a lot more opportunities for you and your family. So I think that's a pretty good deal. Uh, higher education here in Texas is of a high quality. And there are a lot of options and different uh, variations of what you can pursue and how you can pursue it in order to lower your costs. You can start in community colleges, which are much more uh, efficient as far as the cost, the total cost, and it's funded partially by local tax dollars. We, I think as a state, probably need to continue to ensure that we have better articulation agreements, meaning that as you take courses in community colleges, that those, courses transfer freely into the other uh, universities. And uh, I think so, in, in, at the end of the day, really we have a, a pretty good, this is a good investment uh, for, and even if it has a debt of 20, about 24,000, between 24 and 28, which is I think lower than the national average uh, for public institutions, uh, it seems to me that that's a pretty good investment given the rate of return. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we should specify though
0: I think we're largely talking about Uh, public institutions, it seems like people really rack up that at the for-profits or, you know, there seems to be concerns about the different types of institutions. Obviously everyone here is sort of representing public institutions. So that is something to keep in mind, I think. One of the things that uh, Representative Castro mentioned was the $10,000 degree, which is something that our public institutions have been trying to implement, and a lot have sort of uh, found a way to, through loans or grants, bring down the cost for the student to $10,000. But uh, the one at in Commerce is sort of different where they've actually rethought the delivery mechanism for that. And can you just really explain how that works?
4: Sure, Reeve. Thank you for the question and for the invitation to be with you here today. Our, uh, quote, $10,000 degree, it had its genesis in the Governor's State of the State Address into uh, January 2011. And like, I think, every other college president of the state, I listened with interest and a certain amount of skepticism. Uh, as to whether this could be done. Uh, So I took it back to my faculty, and I said, the governor wants us to do this. Uh, I don't know how. Do you all have any thoughts? Uh, And as you said, uh, there are a number of uh, programs in the state, 12 or 13 uh, public universities in the state now have something called the quote $10,000 degree. Uh, And you get there by packaging uh, financial aid, loans, grants. Uh, You max out dual credit, you max out community college transfers. Uh, and you can get to that figure uh, if you package all of these things together and basically what you're doing is, is is assembling existing opportunities into what is a viable but fairly complex educational program. So really, my, I credit my faculty with this innovation, came back to me and said, uh, let's rather than tinkering around the edges, let's try something entirely different, at least in public education. Uh, and the program that they developed with the help of uh, the coordinating board and in partnership with South Texas College, uh, as well as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they partnered with a development grant, was a competency-based baccalaureate program. We call it our uh, Texas Affordable Baccalaureate. It is a BAAS, Bachelor of Arts in Applied Science and Organizational Leadership. and there's a lot of intricacies uh, related to the program, which obviously we don't have time to go into uh, today, but it it rests on a very, very simple principle, and that is you shouldn't have to spend time on money, uh, time and money uh, paying an institution to teach you things you already know. Okay, so there is a complete comprehensive array of assessment instruments. You go into the program, you take assessments in all of the various skill areas, There are very carefully lined-out competencies in each uh, area. Uh, And once you demonstrate the competencies, you move on. So uh, if you are proficient in most of the program, you can move through most of the program extraordinarily quickly. Uh, If not, there's a full uh, instructional package that goes with it. Uh, It's built on a uh, six, seven-week terms per year. And in each term, uh, there's a flat rate of $750. It's all inclusive. It includes access to all the online materials, the faculty members, the assessment instruments, uh, and the electronic resources or the textbooks. And this is the part that's uh, exciting to me. It's a young program. We're about six or seven months into it now. And uh, what we're finding out is that students uh, uh, can accelerate their progress. So, typically, you start a seven-week semester with a six-hour course schedule. We've had students finish those six hours in the first four days of the semester. Well, they can go on and take another course, and another course, and another course, all for the same price. And to date, we've had one student, in fact, pick up 19 semester credit hours in one seven-week semester for $750. So, that's a bargain, you know, in in, in anybody's um, uh, set of calculations. So uh, again, it's, um, uh, we're rolling it out. Uh, we have about 150 students now. We really think within five years, we'll probably have about 3,000 graduates. And we're looking at trying to, to break it out into more disciplines and extend uh, opportunity you know, ever more widely.
0: But uh, are there some disciplines and some students that this sort of thing, you know, a largely competency-based, largely online approach just won't
4: work for? Oh, absolutely yeah, I, I always want to be careful about overselling oh, this, you know, this is not the breakthrough revolution in higher education. Uh, I think uh, some of the higher order uh, engineering programs would be touch, tough to handle in this way. Uh, nursing would probably be tough, at least at the undergraduate level, the clinical level. Uh, anything that involves a lot of hands-on uh, skills. Uh, but, you uh, Other areas of the sciences, uh, certainly other areas of the humanities and social sciences. I mean, I I think there's a lot more applications out there.
0: Well, and how much of of trying to make, at least manage the affordability of higher education these days is sort of just making sure students know about these options and what's out there. And I know that's something that UT System has been working on uh, with their CQT program, which you've been very involved in. Maybe you could talk about that.
5: Sure. So, uh, the University of Texas System has released a program, we released it in January of this year, for students and parents called CQT. And it's an application where students and parents can go to the website and look by major, so if you're interested in being an English major or a chemistry major, you can look and see how much you would make first year, fifth year out, and then how, what your average student loan debt would be uh, if you were to go through those programs. So it really gives students an opportunity to uh, make informed decisions, to know, okay, this is something I'm interested in, uh, this is what I, graduates who have majored in this before me are making in the field, and this is how much they have in student debt. And then they have a conversation point where they can talk to their family and their parents and decide, you know, what, what path is best for us as a family, uh, financially and economically. And uh, we're going to, um, the, the current CQT application, which is on the web, you don't have to be a UT student to see it. Anyone can, can look at our UT System website and see CQT. Uh, we're going to be updating it on October 8th and releasing information on graduate student debt and also uh, salaries as well. And professional school, so if you're interested in being a doctor. You know, 10 years out, what what are you making as a doctor and what does your student debt look like? So we're, we really believe that it's important to arm our constituents, our parents and students, with information so that they can make intelligent choices, choices that fit their lifestyle before they start down a pathway and later on find that that doesn't work for them. Representative
0: Castro, do you want to
1: follow up on that? Well, no, I was going to say, you know, I commend the university on its $10,000 degree plan, and I think there are a lot of folks who do well <laughs> with online learning. Um, and the chancellor made the point about uh, Texas being reliant, either the chancellor or you made the point about Texas relying on federal grants, uh, student loans, those things. Uh, and so I think something all of us should be concerned with is the budget that was passed in the House of Representatives um, earlier this year, the Ryan budget that cuts billions of dollars from Pell Grants, uh, looks like it cuts work-study and cuts student loans. And you know, Unless you're going to pay for college, you know, unless you're just going to pay it all up front or your parents are able to pay it all up front, people generally finance their college education in one of a few ways, uh, either through work or work-study, uh, through grants or through loans. And so when you start cutting off access to those things, I think in the coming years, uh, if a budget like that goes through, you're going to see students struggle a lot more to make it work. Um, And then also, part of the challenge we have is, and I agree with the chancellor, $25,000 as compared to buying a car or buying a house, certainly, or something else, uh, $25,000 in debt is a solid investment uh, to make sure that you're able to pursue your dreams and have the career that you choose. Uh, But that's only the case if you actually graduate. And... Our graduation and completion rates at our, public, at our public universities in Texas and our community colleges are often lower than our high school graduation rates. And so, uh, you know, Dan Branch and I did a lot of work while we were there, as did the other members of the committee, on you know, making sure that our universities are focused on completion because we've spent a lot of time focusing on getting people in the door, uh, but we've not dedicated as much energy to making sure once they're there that they actually finish off. Uh, and in the worst case scenarios, people are have taken out thousands and thousands of dollars of loans, and then they have no degree uh, to go to go use uh, and a career to use to pay it off.
2: Um, I I just wanted to tag on to what Stephanie had uh, to offer. Back in two thousand and twelve, uh, TG did a series of research reports that were uh, based on uh, major choices and choices of majors and choices of schools looking looking specifically at um, the debt to income ratio and we published a research report that was uh, called uh, balancing uh, uh, passion and practicality and it wasn't intended to say you know any particular major was bad just be informed about the kind of major that you're choosing and as stephanie said uh what what you might expect to earn. And to help inform you as you're borrowing, if I'm going to be a teacher, I have a lot of different choices as to where I might go to school. So with that in mind, you know, take a look at we and ha- art. We actually have a tool called Major Choices, similar to what UT has, but it has all of the different public um, uh, schools here in Texas. And you can actually pick and choose and compare pricing And it will give you an idea, again, based on what you're likely to earn, um, you know, as a salary for that type of major. And then uh, an average as far as your debt-to-income ratio. And your debt-to-income ratio for your annual student loan payment is recommended to be less than 15%. And so you can kind of uh, gauge from that, you know, whether or not this is a good school choice for you, um, this is a good, uh, you know, major for you. And uh, I think consumer education is really what we're talking about here, having good consumer information upfront, good informed parents and students. So as they're making these choices about where to go to school and what to study, uh, you know, they have good information as it relates to what their job prospects are and then subsequently how much they should or should not take out in debt.
0: Well, and does, this, does this represent sort of a, a change in our, the way we think about students and in our relationship with students? You know, someone earlier today asked about, uh, you know, isn't college just sort of a place to go and find yourself to some extent? That's how we sort of think of it. I mean, uh, you know, is, is, this a, is this a fundamental shift, this idea that, well, you need all this uh, information and you need to be sort of navigating these sort of complex pathways to make mm-hmm. sure that you, uh, you know, don't get it, don't, end up with much more than $25,000 in debt. Well,
4: I'd like to jump in on that one, Reeve. Uh, one of the uh, problems, and this speaks to the problem that both uh, the congressman and the chancellor brought up about completers or non-completers. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking at the university to see students come in with 90 or 100 or, or more semester credit hours from community colleges all of which are, quote, transferable in the sense that we have equivalent courses in our program inventory, but we can't bundle them toward a degree. We can only take 60 toward a degree because the others just don't fit in the program. Um, And that's a problem which I think speaks to a larger systemic problem, and that is we have lots of providers in higher education who are offering, I think, very high-quality academic programs but not necessarily a great deal of coordination that centers specifically on the needs of the individual student, and moving that student from one institution to the next. One of the phenomenon, this is not a new phenomenon, I would say, of the last 15 to 20 years, is the, the so-called swirling of students. You know, we have students in AM Commerce who are co-enrolled at Paris Junior College or Eastfield College or, you know, any of another half dozen other institutions. They get advising there. We Give them advising at A and M Commerce, but there's not that kind of coordination between the institutions. We have all the articulation agreements, you know, we don't fight the transfer battles, but we're just not doing a good job as a system of higher education in the state in being more prescriptive with our students. And um, yeah, I, I think that college is a great place to find yourself. Let's find ourselves within a limited range of options. You know, let's not throw the whole universe out there. Um, still within
3: 120
4: hours. <laughs> still within 120 hours, exactly. Um, and and uh, point students in direction in certain directions, guide them. You know, not prescribe for them, but um, give them a little more structure in terms of the programs that we uh, that we provide to them. Well, uh,
0: one of the ways that I think the state has tried to guide students recently is that. Now you all have uh, a requirement that you have to provide four-year fixed tuition option for students. And is that actually, uh, maybe Chancellor Duncan, since that came up in a bill that uh, was passed last session when you were uh, yet to be on the chancellor side of things, you know, is that really a mechanism that will make higher ed more affordable, especially since in order to make that work for the universities, I think it has to be started at a higher starting point.
3: I think we should you know, offer and encourage a lot of different ideas and creativity with the way we do tuition. I think that the four-year program, quite frankly, front loads a lot up front and so I'm not sure how much more efficient it is, much more, how much more uh, cost, you know, how, how it reduces cost. It gives you some predictability, which is good, but uh, again, I think that, especially if you don't complete, you're going to pay a huge price up front. Uh, in order to uh, cover that. So, these really aren't cheaper, they're just basically more predictable. I think other options, um, you know, we we look a lot at, and there's a, there has been a huge uh, emphasis on trying to uh, come up with programs and ideas to how to, to incent universities to be more efficient to get people out. Uh, Outcomes-based funding is one one idea. Uh, I'm not sure that has not been real popular in the legislature. Uh, the coordinating board has pushed it. The governor has pushed it. I think that that's a concept that can be worked on uh, on how you fund it as incentives to be able to have uh, students move through. But there are a lot more components to it than just the university saying the university's funding is going to be based on that. You don't want to you don't want to lower your standards for graduation. You don't want to uh, uh, lower the quality of the product that you're, you're basically providing to the student by just trying to push them out. So uh, investment in counseling, which is one of the common threads to a lot of this is the fact that do people get good counseling when they plan their college education? Do they get good counseling about whether, should they go to a general academic institution or should they start first in a community college? And it depends on how you start working through the pipeline and the type of advice and planning that you have through that time, or through that uh, uh, planning stage of getting through the pipeline. So I think we can do a better job of that. I don't know uh, how, I think there are, the, the question about how you incent that is still up in the air. I think positive incentives are certainly a lot better than negative incentives but I do think that uh, institutions can do a better job, community colleges as well as the general academic institutions can do a better job of advising students, not only on the best w- pathway for them, but also on the way to, uh, on, on the best uh, application of financial resources to get there.
0: Is, is, there, is there much hope for universities uh, in Texas, public universities getting more financial resources out of the legislature? either in terms of, you know, funding directly or for Texas grants or programs like that?
3: Well, I'll avoid going into budget 101 because <laughs> that will take all day. Uh, but one of the th- reasons I do believe that you see in this, in, in this country, uh, the increase in the cost of public higher education to the student is the limitations we have on state budgets. Most state budgets are required to be balanced. In Texas, we have a constitutional spending limit. We have entitlement programs and other programs like public education that basically uh, keep taking more and more and more of the, of the percentage of the budget, that we, of the dollars we actually have available. So as a result, when we get into times like 2003, when all across this country, uh, we, had a, we had a basic decline in the economy. So all across the country, you saw uh, budgets in higher education decrease. The same thing started happening in 2009 with a, when the economy crashed in 2008 and in Texas, we had a $27 billion shortfall in, in 2011 and we had a uh, like a $10 or $11 billion shortfall in 2003, Well, where are the largest cuts that you have to make? Not that you want to make those cuts, but when you have spending limits and available revenue and you have entitlement programs that demand the money legally, uh, things like higher education have a tendency to get cut. So when that happens, and just like in 2003, the reason that we deregulated tuition in 2003 was because it became very clear that with tighter budgets, higher education in Texas was going to not be able to keep up and compete nationally. And so the hope was is that we would be able to create additional revenue and keep our competitive edge in higher education as we went through. I don't think anybody anticipated that it would be as the growth would be as great as it has been in tuition, but we have seen about a four or five percent increase in a year in or a year in uh, in tuition in order to fund the basic programs. So uh, as we go back into this next session, uh, we do have a surplus. You're going to see more money. We have a rainy day fund. We have a, a lot more money, but actually a lot more money than we can actually spend uh, based on the constitutional spending limit, unless you can get a two-thirds majority to do that. I don't know if that'll happen, but I do think that we at higher education have to basically convince the legislature that this is the best investment that we can make in our state tax dollars, because when we provide opportunities for our young people to get higher education, then we increase uh, our workforce, we increase the quality of our workforce, uh, and we make our state more competitive, which is a good economic development model. Uh, I think uh, we're behind a little bit in higher ed, and I think this next session is a time that we need to look at more money in the formula. When you put more money in the formula, then you in- decrease the pressure to raise tuition. Uh, we need to fund more uh, facilities. Uh, we're, it's been several years since we've had any state, new state money with regard to funding facilities. And then finally, I think uh, there are just some basic research things that we want to do as well to be able to uh, provide, make sure that our higher ed uh, institutions are more competitive and that we continue to attract faculty and that we continue to keep our really good students in Texas. We have a lot of students that migrate out of Texas uh, to other universities, and I think we would like to keep our own here if we could, especially the brightest among us. So. Those are the challenges the legislature is going to have next session. Uh, we've faced them every session that I've been there. But uh, the good news is we have a little we have a little cushion, hopefully, to be able to do that, along with a few other problems in Texas. But I do believe that higher education will be, and I think we'll certainly try to convince the members of the legislature it's the best investment we can make.
0: Well, Representative Castro, you spent some time in the legislature. Do you think yeah. uh, they might provide some relief to the universities that would trickle down to the students trying to pay for it?
1: Yeah, I hope so. Uh, you know, you you have a legislature that's been reluctant to raise revenue over the last several years uh, and also at the same time reluctant to um, use the rainy day fund in the way that I think it should and others believe that it should on areas like higher education, but also on water infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, and these things. And I would just add two points. You know, one thing we haven't discussed is developmental education. Developmental education is the graveyard in higher education. Uh, That is where people's college dreams go to die. Uh, And a large percentage of Texas students go into developmental education and then never come out of it. Uh, With respect to articulation agreements, a few decades ago, our problem was that community colleges and universities were not speaking to each other very well. And so somebody would start at a community college and want to transfer, and when they tried to transfer, a lot of those credits would not be honored at the university. We now have a higher level problem, which is, there are many for the most part, there are articulation agreements in place, but nobody's really keeping track of those throughout the state. So I remember when I was on the committee, I asked the Higher Education Coordinating Board, you know, do you have basically a list that describes all of the articulation agreement across the state? Uh, and they said, no, they didn't keep track of it. And unless that's changed in the last two years, uh, I said, well, how many are there? They said, well, there could be hundreds or thousands. I mean, literally, there is nobody keeping track of these things. Uh, and so if you're going to do a better job of coordinating and making things seamless, then that's part of the job that either the coordinating board or some other agency has to do.
3: I will say this, just to comment, though. I do think that, in, as, as you as you know, too, that we that the universities has uh, have had an outreach, I think, to try to improve and increase the number of articulation agreements. The quality of those and the data... Uh, that uh, is associated with that is probably not as well known. I think you're right. That would be a good project for us. to.
1: Well, And, and what we found was that it tended to be, there tended to be regional cooperation. So if you were a student in Houston, for example, the universities right. in Houston had good relationship with the community colleges around Houston. But if you were in Houston and you wanted to go finish off in Dallas or San Antonio or the Valley or vice versa, there wasn't much cooperation across the state. Uh, and these were just, these tended to be, Ad hoc agreements, usually based on region, uh, but but I agree the articulation agreements have gotten much better. Uh, where there is an articulation agreement, the schools have been working better together. We just have a lot of work to do so that that becomes more standardized across the state. I think.
2: Mr. Millen, do you have something to add? Yeah, I I just wanted uh, to mention that eighty-one uh, percent of college freshmen enter the post-secondary education world through our community colleges. Um, That's their first stop. And so I think these articulation agreements are very important but it's also important as it relates to debt. And I think there's a misnomer that you know you go to a community college for a couple of years, keep your costs low and then you transfer to a four-year, complete your degree and overall your overall, overall student loan debt is going to be less. And that's Um, completely false. Uh, We did a study over the last couple of years that showed that the cost for these community college uh, students that transfer to a four-year, this is a public uh, four-year university, is really only about a hundred dollars less in total student loan debt. And if you're talking about a four-year private, it's actually about twelve hundred dollars more. So it's good to, you know but again it gets back to advising making sure that you're making informed decisions and that people understand what they're doing because otherwise they can rack up a, a whole lot of debt and uh, you know not really save themselves anything in the long run
0: right yeah stephanie how hard is it to actually change student behavior and sort of you know <laughs> especially if you have sort of misinformation out there about how to save your, save yourself some money
5: Well, I think uh, as higher ed administrators, the best that we can do is create reliable resources that the students can use that are easy to understand. Uh, When we developed our product, CQT, we had input from our Student Advisory Council. And, you know, a lot of times you think, you know, or I might think, oh, I know this is the students are going to think this is great. And I show it to the students, and then I find out that they don't like it at all, and it needs to be completely different. And so uh, one of the things that I've learned that's very important in changing student behavior is the idea that you need to actually ask the students their opinion when you're trying to develop a product and tool for them to use and continue to get their opinion after you release that tool so that you know it's effective. Because if we're going to create something, we want to make sure it hits our our target audience and make sure that it's something that they can use. Well, I
0: was going to throw out, uh, since people sent in questions on uh, Twitter and other social media. I thought I'd throw some of those out there. and these can, Anyone can grab these if they want, although I think that the Chancellor might want to take this first one, since it's, do huge system administration costs uh, help or hurt affordability? That's sort of an administrative bloat question, I guess.
3: Well, it depends on, <laughs> it, it's one of those depends questions. I think that the systems uh, operate uh, in Texas uh, to do a number of different things, and one of them is to manage the general overall uh, inst- the general academic institutions in the system at a hopefully more efficient way, in that you don't have to you don't have to duplicate a lot of services like legal, audit, and also in a lot of cases uh, advancement and development. So I think that the 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 system expenses can be efficient. Uh, I do think that there probably can be bloat and can be uh, inefficiencies in that. But right now, if you look at the systems uh, and one of the major roles of the systems, uh, the system offices, I know our system, UT, is to actually raise money for the uh, institutions in the system. So if you look at the return on that investment, it's really pretty great. If you look at the amount, for example, Texas Tech last the system, uh, now has a an endowment of over a billion dollars. Uh, a lot of that comes from the efforts of the system uh, to coordinate, uh, and we have a very, like UT and a and all the other systems have a very uh, elaborate uh, and I think uh, sophisticated approach to development in, in philanthropy. Without development in philanthropy right now, we would not be competitive in this nation because we just haven't kept up with the state appropriations because of the different uh, economic conditions that we've experienced in the state. But when you look at what we've been able to raise, uh, Texas Tech University, for example, raised $158 million last year through development, but that came through the uh, office of the chancellor's office through the system, uh, uh, contribution to that. So when you look at it that way, the systems really do uh, provide uh, uh, an efficient uh, and, and are a very good return on, get a very good return on the investment.
5: And I, I would like to add to that um, this idea that as systems we can leverage our shared buying power. Right. Uh, so we recently brought audit up to the system level. So that's something that the campuses now don't have to have that at administrative expense, and then that goes to the ultimate issue of sort of how can we lower the cost. For our students. Uh, shared purchasing, a- another example. So there are opportunities for us as higher ed administrators to think creatively about what we can do at, as, as a large group uh, in order to reduce the burden of a single campus that might be small, might be in an isolated place in the state of Texas. Uh, you know, being in Austin, uh, having that those networks allows us to help reduce the administrative costs. Of our universities
0: and at UT, it was specifically they brought the audit up so that they could keep tuition flat.
5: That's right. Right, we did not raise tuition for undergraduates in state.
0: Uh, well, here, here's another question, from the Twitterverse. Uh, when we when we talk about these things, should cost metrics show the average total cost, so tuition fees minus average aid and scholarship, instead of just showing? Usually, when we talk about sort of tuition and fees for institutions, but very few people pay the full price. So, should we change the way we sort of talk about
4: the cost of college for students? I think a lot of times we use cost and price interchangeably and they're very very different things. You know the price is what appears in the catalog. Nobody pays that or very very few people pay that. You know they all uh, every financial aid package is different from every other financial aid package. Every student set of circumstances and qualifications and eligibility is different from every other students. Uh, when the when the conversation about the $10,000 degree first took place uh, a lot of uh, folks in the higher ed community in the state went back and started figuring, wait a minute, a lot of our students are already paying $10,000 or less out of their own pockets for their baccalaureate degree uh, when you figure in all of the other kinds of institutional aid, federal aid, state uh, Texas grants and so forth, when all of those things are stirred in. so. Um, yeah, pricing college, and and that's why you know we you look you on the web, and there's the college cost calculator. I mean, there's a whole series of instruments out there that are designed to put information into the hands of students and families so that they can make good decisions. It's all good information, but it doesn't always capture the reality of my particular situation. You know, what is what is uh, what are my parents going to have to pay? How much am I going to have to work? So. Um, Texas, uh, someone made the point that Texas really is a value, uh, a good value in terms of higher education. And I think when you stir in all of, the, all of the aid that is available to students from a variety of sources, uh, it's a good place to, to get a college degree in this state.
0: Well, I guess our final Twitter question comes from uh, Twitter <coughs> handle at Castro, TX. <laughs> that, that, uh, what will it take for Congress to act? Maybe you'd like to take that one too. <laughs> uh,
1: staff asking tough questions? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Congress obviously is very divided right now. Uh, the chambers are split between the House and the Senate. Um, there hasn't been much of adding money to higher education lately, as I described earlier. Uh, you know, the, the budget that was passed in the House of Representatives, um, the the proposed one, essentially, uh, would cut higher education. But I think that we have to, if Congress is going to do something productive, what it ought to do is make sure that we we preserve those routes of financing for higher education uh, so that we don't make those cuts, uh, so we preserve work-study loans and grants, the traditional way people get in. But I think that we ought to do other things that are creative. We ought to help universities uh, figure out how they can do better about completion. Uh, and we're doing some of that, but I think we've got to do more of that because there is, there is a risk in putting so much emphasis to families and students mm-hmm. on just cost. Uh, because if your decision is made solely on cost, and oftentimes that's understandable because of, you know, family's economic situation, but the risk, there's a risk in that in that you may be going somewhere where the completion rate is 15 or 20 percent. Uh, and so the, in the end, you may be saddled with that debt. I think there are other things that we can do, Congress or otherwise. Uh, For example, somebody should be ranking employers based on how friendly they are to students and how flexible they are in working with students on allowing them to, you know, the the hours that they need to go to school during the day. Uh, You know, this is just antidote, but over the years I came across so many of my friends, my own friends, that I went to high school with uh, who took years and years to finish off, because they were in this familiar work-school tug-of-war you know, because they couldn't just pay school off on on their own, they were working often full-time or more than 20 hours and also trying to take a full uh, class load. Um, and, and ultimately for many of them, uh, work won out and they'd give up on school and go work. You know, So we gotta help get people, whether it's on the federal level or the state level, help get people out of that work-school tug-of-war so they, they're able to concentrate on school and finance it graduate, and then go on to their career.
3: But at the same time, I believe that we also have to be careful that we don't disincent people who either first-generation, higher ed, enterers, or uh, those who have to work from going to school by policies that basically force them to leave the education uh, opportunity and go to work. And so, that's a tension that I've always observed in our uh, in our outcomes-based funding debates that we've had. Is you have some schools in locations where there is no way these kid these kids or these students or even adults or you know, that have uh, you know twenty four twenty five that have family. There's no way they can they can um, with loans or whatever. Uh, complete college in four years or five years. Sure. And so we don't want to have policies that, that provide incentives for universities to limit those students. Oh, and I agree, Chancellor. Mm-hmm. And
1: one of the most pernicious elements of that Ryan budget was that it would disallow Pell Grants to anybody that's going to school less than half time. And so you know that means you have a lot of these parents that are, are they're already parents, they're taking care of kids, they're working, and they're going to night school. Uh, that budget would say that, Unless you're going more than half time, you can't get any of that Pell Grant money.
3: So, so when, and, and likewise, when when we debate outcomes-based funding in Texas, this is a huge diverse state. And if you look at universities all around the state, students have different challenges. Uh, and and, it, and so we have to be very careful that there's not a one-size-fits-all whenever you deal with outcomes-based funding. So. It'll, it's an interesting debate, and uh, and those are very important issues. Uh, but we do have to recognize that some students just can't do it in four or five or six years. Uh, they have to spread it out, and, uh, and and that does increase the cost. The other thing I want to say, and I'm getting close to wrapping up, but uh, the cost the cost figures that you see in the different studies, the 24-8, which is the Texas average. Um, probably doesn't I'm not sure how accurate that number is and I would submit that it's probably lower if you look at all of the different things that you that you actually deal with and then you also have to analyze is that the cost is the debt based on the actual cost of education which is the state's responsibility to try to provide that or does it also include discretionary spending on whatever your standard of living is that you have while you're in college? And how much are you borrowing uh, to uh, pay for an apartment or a car or whatever? Or what are your needs there? And I'd like to—I would hope that we look at those kinds of studies with some, with with, with some, um, uh, not skepticism, but maybe more with more analytical data as to what they really do mean, because you just can't come up averages. Are really not always a good way to measure how well we're doing with regard to student debt uh, in, in the country as well as in this state. Well I think with
0: that we will transition to Q&A. If people want to line up in the microphones please uh, introduce yourself and uh, then ask a question.
6: Okay. Hi I'm Alex uh, I'm a junior at the University of Texas at Austin uh, majoring in Business Honors and MIS. So my question um, I guess giving a little bit of background um i listening to these uh proposals i feel like that they're extremely intricate and frankly confusing to comply with i've read on the department of education um that giving free tuition to all public universities would cost only 63 billion dollars to put that in perspective the new america foundation estimates that 69 billion dollars is being spent on this current hodgepodge of stuff that still results in a ton of student debt. So why hasn't uh, mainstream political discourse seriously considered the prospect of a simple and elegant solution that would level the playing field for millions of Americans in the working class?
3: Well, I'll start out with that and I'll go back to Budget 101. Uh, Most states, if not all states, have limits on what they can spend their money on. They have a constitutional spending limit or a balanced budget requirement. And so, whenever you look at the the budget in in its entirety and the entitlement programs such as Medicaid, public schools, uh, K through 12, and those sorts of things, as those costs rise, and the spending limits don't rise in connection with them, then other things have to be uh, rationed out. And higher ed is one of the discretionary areas in all budgets in this country that, that basically get, get caught up in that, in that balanced budget. amendment. Yeah,
6: complicated hodgepodge. It, we're spending more in that than in this particular solution than when those budget, budgetary issues not be an issue.
0: It's reality let's not get too much into a debate here.
2: <laughs> I, I, I'd like to say something though that and I'm not sure if this is a direction that you're going one thing that I think that we have a problem with at the at the federal level if you're if you're looking at you know borrowing and grants is it's it is way too complicated there's way too many programs out there too many different grants too many different loans Um, You know, perhaps you could say that at the state level as it relates to grants, although I think Texas has an excellent, um, uh, you know, private loan program with probably the lowest, you know, 5.2% fixed rate, you know, in the country. But I think one of the things that really needs to be rectified that they're going to be looking at as the Higher Education Act goes through reauthorization is don't we need to simplify some of these programs? What about one grant, one loan program, um, a couple of different repayment options as opposed to this confusing mess that they have up there right now, which you almost need a college degree to figure out how to apply for a, a loan or grant.
4: Well, yeah. and
6: <laughs> see, see, even though
2: even if you simplify
4: Finally, it to that level, it's more, more complicated having the questioners rebut what much.
6: I'm proposing. Well, okay.
4: Can I offer you, one yeah, no, a no, very no. brief comment on that, just to build on your uh, comment? Not only is it difficult for students and families to understand, it's extraordinarily complex for institutions to administer. And there is a tremendous cost of compliance involved in making sure that you don't run afoul of the myriad of regulations which carry severe penalties in case you do run afoul of them. I don't know of any institution of higher education in the state who does not need more financial aid officers uh, just because the rules are always changing. So I'm all in favor of a simpler uh, and more equitable approach.
7: I right, let's move over here. Hi, uh, Mike Marshall from Texas Christian University. Uh, thank you for your comments. Um, a, a lot, and this is for the entire panel, but um, a lot of the focus has been on, um, or with this conversation, a lot of the focus has been on uh, sort of career, sort of practical uh, approach. And with that, many of our students at at TCU are interested in majors such as business, that they may have a passion in philosophy, um, you know, a lot of the social sciences and humanities, but a student may say, you know, my parents aren't going to invest $200,000 for me to be a philosophy major. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I am curious to know what your thoughts are on what the future is of the, the liberal arts, you know, the social science and humanities that help. Foster a lot of those soft skills uh, such as critical thinking, uh, problem solving, and so. I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are on the future of the uh, social sciences and humanities. Can I lead off with that? Um, yes, I think that the future is
4: great, and and I think the uh, focus on quote job training in uh, in the university setting is probably overemphasized. I know some of the most accomplished university administrators that uh, that I've been acquainted with in my in my professional career have come from the humanities. Uh, it's where they've learned critical thinking. It's where they've learned problem solving. Uh, it's it's where they've they've learned learned how to closely analyze a text. Well, that translates into closely analyzing a series a series of circumstances. A personal note here: I'm a, an American Studies major. My father was a petroleum engineer, and to the day he died, he never understood how. I got a job at all, let alone a good job. <laughs> but um, when we talk to employers, um, that's what we get back. You know, you, I know that you're turning out great accountants. I know you're turning out great MIS people. But we need people who can engage in teamwork. We need people who can lead uh, a project. We need people who can solve problems. So uh, I personally am troubled by this this kind of disaggregation of the disciplines into those that lead into professional gainful employment and those that you you know study for a lark.
5: I'd like to add to that um, since we've done a lot of uh, research and study into this particular topic that you know, like with everything, it's important to have a balance. And so you know it's important for students to know if they decide to choose a particular major they make you know they decide to be an English major they want to become a teacher and they want to give back to their community and do that sort of valuable civic service that we need you know I think everyone already knows they're not going to make you know petroleum engineering salary right but I think one thing we've learned through our research is that these students are actually doing better than you thought they were they're making a living wage and what we can show after five and ten years is that there is a trajectory of increased salary. Yeah, now they may never get to 150 grand. And, and that's okay, because for them, what they want is to give back to their community. And I think when we talk about dollars and cents, and we talk about, uh, and we boil education down to what you're going to make and what your student loan debt, at the same time, we need to be saying things like, you need to pursue your passion. You need to balance out what's practical for you and your family, but find some way to be in a job that you can go to every day, because this is what you're going to be doing every single day, and this is a very important decision. Yeah,
1: I would just say that I agree. I hope that uh, we maintain a robust humanities, arts, social sciences programs throughout our state's universities. Uh, And I think a lot of the discussion you see in the functional-slash-utilitarian approach to higher education is partly a function of a few things. First, that the economy you know, tanked uh, in 2008, and we're still dealing with the effects of that. But, and families also, of course, were feeling the pinch because of that. Uh, but also, in different places, you saw um, support, financial aid support to students being pulled back while the cost of higher ed was going up. So you're going to get, you know, it's going to create this utilitarian perspective or approach to some extent. I think we've seen that, you know, not to say there isn't a merit in that, that there aren't legitimate considerations. There certainly are. Um, but you know, it doesn't mean that we should abandon uh, these long-standing programs either.
8: Raleigh Cole, Senior Fellow, Sagamore Institute. Uh, in a study I did for the Lumina Foundation, uh, we found that the two areas in which you could most reduce the cost of higher education as opposed to spread it around through grants and stuff is reduce the time the student has to spend in order to get a degree um, and reduce the amount of ancillary services given to the student during the course of that and I'm just concerned that the modern tendency and the experiments with the 10 K and competency and all to me bear that out and yet the pressures are to add more counseling more activities, uh, make sure they can spread their time out. Now, I'm talking about the student time, not not just that. So you might have to go six years, but it's the time you spend being a student and the pressures are to make that higher, not lower. And to for the college to provide more services, not less.
2: I think there was a very good point that was raised um, this morning by Dr. Garcia uh, uh, in, in regards to this. I think work study is a, is a wonderful program, and it's a way for you know students to be able to make money, work on campus, and the more engaged that you are on campus, the more likely you are to have the kind of flexibility um, that Congressman Castor was talking about, as far as uh, uh, allow you know allowing you time away from uh, you know away from your employment in order to go to classes and so forth. Um, only two to three percent, um, you know, of the aid comes from work study and so I think one thing that, you know, uh, we could do is, is take a, a stronger look at how do you have greater engagement, you know, with schools, with work studies and if, if, a, if a student must work, can they work on campus, you know, where they are more engaged, more likely to have that flexibility and perhaps more likely to, you know, complete in a shorter period of time
1: and and i and i think those are legitimate concerns i think you know my concern you you guys spoke about students coming in with 90 hours but only 60 of them can really be applied somewhere i think that's partly because of a lack of guidance and advising you know and so in texas a lot of our community colleges for example don't have but a few hours of orientation I mean, literally a few hours of orientation Uh, where private universities have several days usually. Uh, And so I do think that we've got to be vigilant about guiding our students. But otherwise, I I agree on that.
3: Let me add a little bit to that because I think you've seen a change in the paradigm in public education in Texas with the passage of House Bill 5. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that what we're going to see, and I don't think it's going to happen overnight, Mm -hmm. but I do think what you're going to see over the years is the fact that we are going to have a, a better pathway developed for kids As they exit high school and I think we're hopefully I hope that that plays a role in being able to uh, uh, reduce the cost reduce the the time of trying to find yourself but also uh, I think directing students uh, in a direction where they can be most successful and that means either community college or it means technical schools or it means whatever there is that the student has the aptitude and the desire to go into and so I I see we've made improvements this isn't perfect and none of this changes overnight, but I think incrementally, you've seen changes in Texas uh, in the last four or five years that I hope move us in the right direction to where the cost of education goes down, we're more competitive nationally in our uh, higher ed institutions, and uh, we provide a better quality and better opportunity for our students.
0: Well, I'm afraid we're gonna have to take one more question and hopefully those that we didn't get to will, uh, might be able to run up to the stage and ask their questions off mic, but uh, we're gonna end with this question right
9: here. Uh, this question is generally for the panel as a whole, but in particular, uh Sue Miller? McMill. Uh,
0: McMillan. McMillan, no, 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 yes.
9: That was close. Um, I, just, I was hoping you could elaborate on a point you made earlier in which you kind of argued that uh, it, it was the responsibility of the students to get a better understanding of the college admissions process and, and the financial aid process as a whole because that's kind of run counter to my experience uh i mean i'm a junior now at a at call it southwestern university but i uh, i'm a was an independent i lived on my own since i was 16 so i'm an independent student now and paying for college on my own and uh, uh, just one after the other when i had to deal with financial aid officers after going through the whole admissions process i luckily for most of them i received because i was kicked out of the house when i was when i came out to my parents when i was 16. and one after the other i had the college admissions officers that really didn't understand the federal guidelines and it was very Byzantine and it was difficult for them. I kept getting emails like I'll look up to it and get back to you in two weeks after I I understand it. And now obviously for most of the schools I applied to, I received a dependency override, but for four of them, I actually didn't. Uh, One of them said because there was no physical abuse, it didn't count under federal guidelines. And and I I kept receiving questions like that so I don't understand why I just was hoping you could elaborate on on more of the argument where you have students falling through the cracks. But from my experience, and from anecdotally what I've seen, it's mostly just uh, university after university. It's completely different, even though they're all looking at the exact same guidelines. And and it just to me that just seems to lead to students with uh, it, these traditional ideas of you know a state school might be better or a community college might be better for these students. In reality. A, I thought that might be the same way but in reality a private school ended up being better for me because they were more receptive and understood more and offered me more in scholarships and grants than um what I uh, traditionally when I came to the process thought would be more receptive to that. Yes
2: and and I think I think that's an excellent point. Um for example, um many uh small four-year private colleges are actually um you know more generous with aid yeah. and um you know a better spot you know for certain types of students but they would never think to explore that on their own and um, as far as consumer information it's not the responsibility of just the student and the family you know to know about that um, and I think as we've all discussed up here is you know providing the, the appropriate kind of guidance Uh, Just because we put the information out there, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to understand it. And I can tell you that I can go to the Department of Education website sometimes and look at things Mm -hmm. and go, I don't know what that means myself. And so you can understand how, um, with all the various regulations, people interpret them a little bit differently. If you've ever tried to call the Department of Education for advice, (laughs) you can find out. You can call two or three times and maybe get two or three answers. And so... This gets back to how can we make some things simpler for everybody, whether it be the financial aid office, the school itself, the student, the family, um, so that it isn't so confusing. It shouldn't be that difficult to be able to get a college degree or a post-secondary education. I'm afraid we're
7: going to have to
0: cut it off there. So, Stephanie Bond, Huey, Sue McMillan, Joaquin Castro, Dan Jones, and... uh... Robert Duncan, thanks for joining yeah. us. bit.
9: <laughs> <London. laughs> great to see you.
2: Good to see you too, and congratulations on getting.
7: Go.